Jamie up next. Um, Jamie is going to speak to us for about 45 minutes, um, and then we're going to gather in our groups to have some discussion questions with a bit of tea and coffee, um, and then we're going to have a Q&A at the end. So be thinking of your questions um, throughout this evening. Um, now, I have the formal introduction <laughs> of Jamie this evening. Bear with we know Jamie very personally, so it's an absolute honor for us to invite him up this evening. Um, so Jamie's going to be looking at the topic of Paul and women in the New Testament. He was a missionary in Africa, is that true? Um, and a pastor in Glasgow before he came into doing some ac academic study, um, a PhD in St. Andrews, um, and he is now tutor of New Testament at Trinity College, which is why Isaac and I know him personally. Yes, and um, despite all those really formal things, I've also seen him give some mesmerizing karaoke performances in the uh, college it's bar. True. So just to bring him <laughs> down to a level. But no, we've had the privilege of being taught by Jamie this year. Um, he, he wouldn't know this because of the anonymous marking system, but he's given me both my best and my worst grades <laughs> in my college time. So um, I don't know how to welcome you, Jamie, but um, I'm really... I'm really pleased that all of us get to experience um, the wonderful <laughs> insight and character of this guy this evening. Yes, amazing. And I've also heard from friends who have heard um, Jamie speak on this topic tonight, and I've said it's very liberating. Um, so I'm really excited to hear it tonight. So should we give Jamie a round of applause as we welcome him up? Thank you for that. Isaac's committed a serious offence. What happens in the college bar stays in the college bar. And that's, that's, that's a sacrosanct rule that you shouldn't mess with. So you might be getting some of those low grades again sometime soon. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much, guys, for that warm introduction, most of it. And it's good to be with you. I've been nervous about this. I came last week, by the way. I met a few of you last week. I snuck in the back um, just to see a little bit about what was going on here. This is a really great thing. Um, goodness me, look at all these people here. Um, you know, this is a theology talk, right? <laughs> There's not something else happening in another room that, that you guys were expecting to be at. T to see so many people gather now on week three, I figured, you know, the interest would fade off by week three and I'd be safe. But to see so many people gather from God's church to want to go deeper and to wrestle with really tricky issues. I mean, my colleague Tido took the easy option last week with talking about the Trinity, which is... That's just a softball question. Um, we're going to do something a bit more challenging this evening. But to see so many of you coming out to um, spend your Tuesday night um, wrestling with complex questions um, as an act of faith, as an act of, of wanting to grow in our Christian walks together is just really inspiring. You know, I labor away in my classroom thinking, am I just casting my pearls before swine, no offense to my students who are present, thinking, what am I doing with my life? You know, and I'm at that age where I ask that question on a fairly daily basis, what am I doing with my life? And to see uh, churches like yours get, getting together um, to wrestle with these questions together is just incredibly inspiring as someone who feels called to, to teach in God's church. Um, so thank you. You've already been a tremendous blessing to me just by being here. Um, and thanks for the invitation and for this, this whole thing. This is going to be really hard work tonight, uh, mostly for me, probably a little bit for you as well, in various ways. And um, I've picked this topic because I made a commitment a while ago that if I ever got given free reign of topics, then I would try and teach on this. Something that I feel called to do, something I feel convicted about. Um, and, you know, you make that, you make that uh, 
commitment to before the Lord, and then you don't expect anyone to ever invite you anywhere. And then, and then Matt and Toby invited me, so I kind of had to do it. Um, let me start with a few kind of framing comments just to get it before we dive in. We're going to be looking at our Bibles closely. I'm a New Testament tutor, so you'll want your New Testament open at some point today. So if you, there are some around, and if you brought your own, just to give you a heads up, you'll need those later on. A few, few framing issues. Um, first off, a, uh, just a comment on self-care. I know that we're so used to trigger warnings on everything these days, but I mean it with this one. Um, for some of us, this might be a purely abstract question. What does Paul think about women? What do we do with Ephesians 5? What do we do with these passages? For others, this is far from an abstract issue. Uh, this is a deeply, deeply personal issue. And for some people, and uh, I would be very surprised if that's not true of somebody here, um, for some people, a deeply painful question. These texts have been weaponized and used against people and have been done so, I believe, very wrongly. And I'm hoping that um, if that's the situation that you come in, that you feel that you're safe, and that you'll be able to stick at it and, and hopefully find uh, the way through these texts to find some freedom and, and some care. If it gets too much, um, or if you just need the loo, I'm going to cover everything. <laughs> just leave. Uh, no one's going no to say anything. Um, if you need to go take a breather, if you need to be somewhere else for a few minutes, if you just need to leave and not come back, you have my complete permission to do so. Um, my students do it, and they're required to be in my classes, so you guys can do what you like. Um, but no, I mean that in all seriousness. Take care of yourselves. Um, the other thing is, take care of each other. If you disagree with me, and you probably will uh, at some point, um, by all means, disagree with me and do so loudly and forcefully. I'm, I'm used to that. I, I enjoy it. It's part of iron sharpening iron, and we grow together as we disagree with one another. But always be aware of the third person in the room, because sometimes when we're disagreeing, somebody else is caught up in the crossfire. So look after yourselves, but look after each other. And if we do that, then we can dive into this stuff, I think, with the confidence of God's care, uh, of God's scriptures that are life and truth and yeah, they can cut us to the quick, but they always do so um, more like a scalpel and less like a, a broadsword, um, at least when wielded well. And so I'm asking for your prayers that I would do that. The other thing I want to name, uh, well, two other things I want to name. Um, one is the diversity of experiences in the room. We're going to be looking at what are called the household codes in, in Paul. And they have a lot to do with husbands and wives, but by no means is everybody in the room married. Um, so if that's not you, hopefully you'll still find things here that are useful. After all, these texts have often been used to speak about men and women generally, and not just husbands and wives. So I don't want to be exclusionary of people who aren't in married relationships. Um, hopefully this has still got something important to say to us all. In fact, I really believe it does have something to say to us all about how we think about our identities. So although it's on the surface, there'll be a real focus on the husband-wife relationship, I actually think there's something much deeper going on here that we can all learn from. Okay, my view up front. I'm not going to keep this as the Agatha Christie final page. Um, I believe in the full inclusion of women and men together in all aspects of Christian ministry. Uh, I believe that that's what the scriptures teach. Uh, I believe that texts that seem to say otherwise have been either mistranslated or misunderstood in various ways. I have by no means solved all of the puzzles. I'm still wrestling with this. I'm still learning. And the more I teach it, the more I learn. So you can help me out a little bit further tonight. But that's where I'm coming from, just to kind of give you the, the heads up of my position. I'm quite happy to engage in dis discussion and debate with others about this, but that's where I am. That's, the, that's the, the convictions that I have as to what the scriptures teach. Okay, so those are, those are the caveats. That's the preamble. That doesn't count in my 45 minutes, by the way, because that was just housekeeping. Okay, let's name the elephant in the room. Why is a man teaching this? Right? 
I know at least one person who's not here tonight because they didn't want to come and hear another man telling women about their lives, okay? And I know that because she told me last week. Um, <laughs> bless her. I think there were other reasons why she couldn't be here. <laughs> and she's absolutely right, absolutely right. Why is a man talking about this? Why would I presume to stand here and talk about women? I'll give you a few reasons. Um, first off, the question of the ministry of women in the church is not just a women's issue. It is a church issue. If women are to be included fully in the ministries of the church, and the church has historically not encouraged and empowered that, we've all lost out. How many prophets, how many teachers, how many pastors, how many wonderful leaders for Christ have missed out on being able to exercise the vocations properly because of this? It's a whole church issue, so we all have to think about it. It's not just an issue for women. And it shouldn't be relegated to the women's room or the women's tent at the conference you know, with, with you know, the, the pink tent, where they, they, they talk about women's issues over crochet and um, that kind of thing. It, it's for all of us. The role of women in the church is, is a matter for the church. And so we all have to talk about it together. So it's a church issue and not just a women's issue. And the continuing sidelining of women for ministry, I believe, costs us all. I've met many wonderful ordinands in my, my day job teaching at Trinity College, many wonderful women who came late to their vocations because for many years they didn't think that they should. And I just think, how many wasted years of ministry? Now, the Lord is good, and he doesn't let these years get wasted. He restores the years that locusts eat. But still, it's, it breaks my heart sometimes to see these people. I think, you should have been here 10 years ago. Just think how much more could have been there. So it is a church issue for us all. And men, we men need to be advocates, speaking up, speaking this, this, sometimes, you know, it's like a woman can have a great idea and say it six times and then I'll come along and say it once and everyone will go, wow, I've never heard that before. Um, another disclaimer, almost everything I'm saying I'm going to get from books written by brilliant female scholars. Okay, so this isn't my own work. I'm going to tell you all about them and what they've said. So I need to be an advocate. I need to be an ally, which means standing alongside women as they have experienced these passages differently. And sometimes that means stepping aside and giving space but sometimes that means stepping up and speaking out. And I try and do both. And so at this point, I'm stepping up and speaking out. At other times in my life, I step aside and give the stage to somebody else and try and give the stage to women, and particularly to my female colleagues and my female students. So we need to be advocates and we need to be allies and we need to be amplifiers. We need to dial up the volume when women have spoken and haven't been heard. And like I say, most of what I'm going to say is me amplifying the voices of great female scholars who have wrestled with these texts and helped me to understand them. So I'm going to be amplifying what they have said. Hopefully that's sufficient to allay your fears as to why I would bother to stand up here. But if not, we can perhaps talk about that in the Q&A. The other thing I'm, um, the only other reason I'm here is partly because I got invited. Um, these texts are in the New Testament, and that's kind of my job. That's my calling to teach people to read the New Testament well. So I kind of feel like when presented with an opportunity, I've just got to do my job. Um, and as I said, I have convictions from the scriptures about what we should think about uh, women in ministry. And so I've got to do my job. You get convicted by the Lord, and He says, Well, that's your thing to do. I can't do much. I'm not very good at much. I'm not that good at karaoke, to be honest. But I can do a few things. And one of the things I can do is, is I can teach, um, I hope. So I hope we'll learn some things together. Okay. So at the heart of this, really, it's a question of how we read passages, how we read texts. A lot of this comes down to good and bad readings. How do, you, how, how do we go about being a good reader of the Bible? 
You'd think it would be fairly straightforward and fairly obvious. You just read the Bible and take the plain sense of it until you start to scratch at the surface. And hopefully if you're all here tonight, you're here because you want to do more than scratch at the surface. And you start to realize, well, these texts, for starters, that, that we, we, most, of them, most of us encounter them in translation, right? Anybody here got New Testament Greek? Just so I can gauge where I'm at for the evening. Don't be ashamed to put your hand up. I'll put my hand up first. I know at least one person has, because I taught him. <laughs> There's one person who tried and, you know. Was that, was, that, was that the best grade or the worst grade? It was probably your best grade, wasn't it? You did pretty well in Greek, yeah. There will be some Greek here and there. Don't worry, I'll help you through it. But you, we, it's, we often forget that we encounter the Bible in translation. That what's in the pages in front of you is a translation. And translation is an, inter, an act of interpreting. Because you have to decide. You have to make decisions about what words mean. And some, some of those decisions have been made for you. And maybe you want to ask questions about whether good decisions were made by those committees of men as they translated key terms. You want to make real lasting change, women? Go learn New Testament Greek. I'll teach you. New Testament Greek, go join a translation committee and ask awkward questions. Okay, so the importance of reading texts well. It's what fancy people like me who get paid too much to talk for a living call hermeneutics, the art of interpreting. And it's one of the most interesting parts of what I do, is teaching people the skills required to interpret texts, how we read, especially when it's texts like this, when how you read really matters. When how you read can either bless or curse, can either help or hurt people. This is not abstract. We're not in the realm of theory this evening. Reading the Bible is a practice. It's the oldest Christian practice there is. And like all practices, you can do them well or you can do them badly. And we've got history of both in the, in the life of the church. How we read really matters. So what I'm going to do in, in the time that we have, the 45 minutes starts now, by the way, because that was just preamble. Okay, so the, the time that we have together this evening, what I'm going to do is just talk a little bit about some of the ways that we might get into interpreting this just one, one or two passages, and there's a whole bunch more. This is just one lecture of about six or seven. And it's these three worlds of interpreting the Bible. Six or seven. And it's these three worlds of interpreting the Bible. When you come to a passage in the, in the Scriptures, three worlds collide. For a start, you've got this world behind the text, the history of first century Mediterranean, of Greek and Roman culture, of the Jewish story, of the Middle Eastern and Mediterranean culture and life of the first century world in which these texts were written. And we're talking about the, the New Testament. That world behind the text, the world that came along for the ride when Paul or whoever sat down to write these words. That they used, words don't exist in a vacuum, they're part of our culture, right? And they're constantly shifting. And so our culture will inform what words mean and what sentences mean and what passages mean. So we're aware of this world behind the text and we need to pay attention to it. A big part of my job is teaching people a little bit about the history, a bit about the ancient world, and to try and understand that this is what was going on in Rome, this is what was going on in Greece. This is what was happening in the first century Asia Minor when this letter was written, for example. So there's this world behind the text, this historical and cultural context. And to become more aware of the distance between where we stand now and where they stood, and to not assume that they think like we think, that would be to do violence to the text, to say, you must think the way that I think, but to recognize the otherness and the strangeness of the text. God, in his mercy, didn't give us abstract mathematical code, but he gave us letters and stories deeply human things, and yet suffused with God's spirit. But how do we take account of that deep humanity by looking at the world behind the text? 
That's one world. The second, the world in the text. We look at, for start, the canon, the whole canon of Scripture, but looking at, at the shape of the document, the, the passage and how it flows, the different stages of it, the phrasing, the words, the paragraphs, where we put divisions, where we put verse numbers, which are not part of the original manuscripts, by the way. We invented those and added them in. Where we put breaks, where we put things, where we put punctuation and so on. How we translate certain words, certain phrases. How it runs, where the emphasis are, what are the themes. This, I think, is just loving attention to the scriptures. Like someone who loves a really good painting and they've seen that painting a thousand times and they still go back and stare at it because they've noticed another brush stroke that they never saw before. I want to give that loving attention to the scriptures by paying attention to the world in the text and how it runs as much as possible. And the last one, and this is where things get quite interesting, is the world in front of the text. When I read the text, I'm reading it. I bring my baggage. I bring my story. I bring my pain, my joy, my language, my culture, my world. It comes along for the ride with me. And if I can assume that I can strip that away, I'm kidding myself. It's often been one of the big mistakes that we've made to assume that there's such a thing as an, a neutral reader, like I'm a, some kind of scientist prodding something in a Petri dish. Even scientists will tell you that that isn't quite as neutral as it looks. That we are part of the reading process. A text, until you read it, is just scratches on a page, and then you read it and it comes alive. The reader's part of that. And good readings pay attention to the three worlds as they collide. Now, I don't give them all the same authority. I don't have the same authority as the text. The text has authority over me. I come from that tradition that, that uh, confesses that. It speaks to me. But nevertheless, I'm still part of the process. Now, in, in the case of the household codes, that's all too obvious for some people, that you bring yourself to these passages. If you even come to the passages at all, and sometimes not even coming to them is part of bringing in our own selves. Some people might want to avoid them. It's okay if that's you. If you've avoided these, you may have very good reasons for avoiding them. Maybe you just don't know what to do with them. Or maybe you're just so worried that they say what you worry they might say, that you don't want to go there. Like me not checking my bank balance, because I'm worried about what I might see. Or maybe you avoid them for other reasons. You're embarrassed by them, confused by them. Maybe you just don't like them, and that's fine. You don't have to like everything. Or maybe you laugh them off. I've seen both reactions. Maybe you know, giggle awkwardly when they come up and when they're read. I think both of those reactions, by the way, are, are completely understandable, but not entirely helpful. Another way to approach them would be to approach them with, with suspicion to say these have been used so often in the tools of powerful men to cause, to cause pain to others that I'm actually going to come and read against them. Now, that's defensible, but it's not going to be the position I'm going to take. I, I come with a fundamental kind of hermeneutic of trust that these, this is good and that I trust the Lord. And if there's something going on here that's causing pain, I might want to interrogate whether it's a poor reading rather than the text itself that's causing the pain. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. That's a little bit kind of intro to the art of interpreting, the art of, of hermeneutics, and something we can all learn to do better. Just to think, and if you just leave now, and that's fine, you've got something from tonight. That when we read, to be aware of these three worlds that collide when we read a text. Okay, ready to jump in with a bit of this? Have I still got your attention? Right, some of you are still with us. Okay, now this is the boring bit. 
unless you are a colossal nerd like I am. In which case, it's the cool bit. Um, who's heard of, heard of Aristotle? Good, right. That's a fair, I mean, he's kind of like the father of Western society, so you probably should have heard of him. But um, Aristotle. So these, these passages that we're about to read in Paul, they, they, they don't live in a vacuum. This is part of going behind the text, this world behind the text. What are sometimes called Paul's household codes um, are not the only household codes available in the ancient world. In fact, the, the, the task of kind of writing instructions for households in this kind of form goes right back hundreds of years before Paul to Aristotle. Famously, he wrote a whole bunch of them. By the way, you'll also find them in First Peter, you'll find them in Titus and other places too. These household codes, they're not unique to the Bible. I was going to see in a minute there are some differences with the way that Paul does it, and those are important. But let's look at the world behind the text a little. They were well established. Aristotle in the 4th century BC, and then a whole tradition that comes on from him, wrote a whole bunch of these codes. And the purpose for Aristotle for these codes was good order in the state. One of his most famous ones in the first book of um, a collection of books called Politics, Aristotle's Politics. Um, it's a ripping yarn if you want something to read for the summer. Um, Aristotle's trying to talk about how do we build a good society? How do we build a good political life? And he begins with the household. Because as far as he's concerned, if you get the building block of the household right, then you'll get the building block of the town right, and the building blocks of the town will come together and you'll get the building block of the state or the empire right. Sound familiar? We've been repeating the same lines over and over and over again in various places in the world. Get the household right, get the family right, everything else falls into place because you've got the building blocks in place. Aristotle still live and well. And so he begins his book on politics by talking about the household before he even gets on to talking about the state and so on. And he, he talks about the household in three key relationships. The master and the slave, the parent and the child, and the husband and the wife. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same three sets of relationships that we find in Ephesians and Colossians, which we'll look at in a moment. You want to hear some Aristotle? Right, I'll do, let's make yourself comfortable. I'm going to read you a little bit of Aristotle. Here he comes. I think we've got his picture as well. Good-looking chap. Okay. You'll be less attracted to him in a minute, I'm sure. Uh, Aristotle's politics. And now that it is clear what are the component parts of the state, we have, first of all, to discuss household management. For every state is composed of households. Household management falls into departments. So he, was, he was such a schmoozer, was Aristotle. Uh, corresponding to the parts of which the household in its turn is composed. And the household in its perfect form consists of slaves and freemen. The investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts. This is classic Aristotle. He begin with the small parts. And the primary and the smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. There you go. Building blocks of a good society. I'm just skipping, skipping around in, in book one of the politics. Others, however, maintain that for one man to be another man's master is contrary to nature. These are the people who think that we shouldn't have slaves. Because it's only convention that makes one a slave and the other a free man. And there's no difference between them by nature. And that therefore it is unjust, for it is based on force. What a radical idea. And what does Aristotle say to that? He says, these considerations therefore make clear the nature of the slave and his essential quality. One who is a human being belonging by nature not to himself, but to another, is by nature a slave. Authority and subordination are conditions not only inevitable, but also expedient. In some cases, things are marked out from the moment of birth to rule or to be ruled. Thank goodness we don't have born to rule people anymore. It is manifest, therefore, that there are cases of people of whom some are free men and the others slaves by nature. 
And for these, slavery is an institution both expedient and just. And in case you thought this was, these were the notes from another lecture, he goes on to talk about gender relationships. Again, as between the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The male, the ruler, and the female subject. The male is by nature better fitted to command than the female, except in some cases where their union has been formed contrary to nature. There are by nature various classes of rulers and ruled, for the free rules the slave, the, mas the male the female, and the man the child in a different way. St. Paul's looking pretty good round about now, right? Aristotle's politics is one of the earliest household codes. Do you notice the repeated refrain? By nature, by nature. As far as Aristotle was concerned, line up your household with what is natural and you'll have a well-run state that conforms to nature. Mess with what is natural and society falls apart. Does that sound familiar? We still have the same arguments in the same ways as to what counts as natural and what doesn't. So Aristotle took issue with people who thought that the master-slave relationship was just about force. Yeah, we heard that. People who said, this isn't natural, this is just about force or convention. And he said, no, it's rooted in nature. Some people are simply born to be enslaved and others born to rule. This is what he means, by the way, with his, his uh, quotable phrase, man is by nature a political animal. And the family, according to Aristotle, arises from this natural order to supply the wants and needs of men. By the way, the family in the ancient world was not the same thing as the nuclear family of today. It wasn't, you know, mum and dad and two kids and a, and a dog. Um, the, the, the family, the household, in, incorp incorporated um, various slaves and others and kind of broader, bigger kind of household situation where you would find all these different relationships. It's quite clear that for Aristotle then, the rule of a husband over a wife is something that's rooted in nature and shouldn't be messed with unless you're going to collapse the state. And so he insists that this hierarchy between husband and, and wife is a permanent, established in nature, fitting relationship. The rule of a household, he says elsewhere, is a monarchy. Okay, you got the idea. So Aristotle's household codes, familiar and echoed throughout Greco-Roman society for 400 years, are part of the fabric of what it means to be a good society. And you don't mess with that sort of stuff unless you want to find yourself in trouble. In fact, cults and sects and so on that messed with this stuff were often hounded out of town, persecuted and, and, and accused of all sorts of things as being people who are rocking the boat and taking apart the fabric of society. So these ideas endured right up till Paul's day, and these form part of that world behind the text that we need to take into account when we read Colossians 3, when we read Ephesians 5, as we're about to do. This is the cultural background when we come to these texts. But notice that a lot of those texts that I read were about the issue of slavery. We've been here before. We've had these debates before. Hundreds of years ago, when we were debating the question of slavery, and there were plenty of people arguing that... that African peoples were by nature made to be enslaved. They echoed Aristotle. And the argument that won the day, although the battle continues, but the argument that won the day was that that was a completely wrong way of understanding human nature. 
and that what was going on here with this argument from nature and Aristotle was not what the scriptures were doing. So we've been here before with the question of slavery, and yet we still somehow find ourselves going through the same tracks when it comes to the issue of women, which is quite interesting. So we've completely rejected that argument from nature when it comes to uh, issues of diff different peoples in the world being fit for rule and others not being fit for rule. And yet, we still hear people appealing to nature when it comes to gender roles. Okay, I've been promising you Colossians and Ephesians for about 20 minutes now, so should we open our Bibles? To Colossians, we'll look very briefly at Colossians chapter 3 and then Ephesians 5. The text will be on the screen, but I might have just picked the translation I want, so by all means grab another one. Uh, the Bibles that I've seen on the tables are the NIV, and I'll have some things to say about them in a minute, but uh, if you've got other ones, that's great too, because it's, if you don't have any Greek, as most of you don't, which is fine, it's always a good idea to get more than one English translation, and then you get a sense of the kind of differences that are going on. So, the household codes in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, they're very, very similar to each other. In some places, they're word for word the same, and there's a reason for that. We think that the one in Colossians was probably written first, and Ephesians is an expansion of the message in Colossians. That um, I believe Paul wrote both of them, that's a debated thing in New Testament scholarship, but I think Paul wrote them both. Uh, he writes one version briefly to the church in Colossae, and then in the, in the letters to the Ephesians, there's a more expanded and more detailed one, which we'll go through in a second. So there's about, about half of them are, are, are paralleled. They address the same three parts of a household, marriage, parenting, and slavery. But they're very different in the instructions that they give, particularly the instructions that they give to husbands, fathers, and masters. Let's look quickly at Colossians 3. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your master. Since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. Very briefly, a few highlights of what's different here. You may have spotted some things already yourself. Obviously, it's a lot shorter than the Aristotle one, but that's more than just the brevity of it. First off, the instruction is about love, not rule. And it's important to pay attention to that. These are not instructions on how to rule your household. That's what you often get in the Greco-Roman household codes. These are instructions on how to love. So that's one thing to, note, to notice straight away, is the language of love and nurture It runs through this passage, even more so in Ephesians, as we'll see. The second thing, and this is quite interesting and quite different, is that it actually addresses the wives and the children and the slaves. Now, some of those addresses can feel like a jab to the heart at times, but did you notice that in Aristotle, the wives and the children and the slaves were, were never addressed? It's like they weren't even in the room. They weren't even given the dignity of being spoken to. And yet here, in Paul's household codes, they are addressed directly and first. I'm going to get to the instructions that are given, but to note that first off, there's a departure, there's a shift from what Aristotle did, in that it's not assumed that the only people worth talking to are the men in the room, or the masters in the room, or the parents in the room. The women and the slaves and the children are themselves given the dignity of being addressed as people. That's more radical than we might think, actually to actually address those people in the room. Gives them dignity, and it reframes the basis of this household discussion as a shared issue. Again, this is a mixed group of people, and it's a shared issue. 
that we should all care about. It's suddenly not a question of how I should run my household, but now it's a question of how me and my wife and my children should all behave in love to one another in our household. And the third, and perhaps the most important one, is that there's this interesting shift. Did you see anywhere in Colossians 3 an appeal to nature? Rhetorical question, the answer is no. Instead, what you get is an appeal to what is fitting in the Lord. Now, I don't think Paul is just better by comparison. I didn't just pick Aristotle as a boogeyman to make Paul look a little bit nicer so we can all go away and say, well, he was only a little bit misogynist and not quite as bad as that really bad misogynist 400 years earlier. If that's all I was doing, that would be useless. We can't go out there and proclaim a gospel that's just you know, not quite as bad as some of the other things that are available, right? <laughs> the gospel is good news, not just slightly less worse news. Live in a way that is fitting in the Lord. I think this is dynamite. If you start thinking of the relationships that we have with one another being rooted not in nature, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, now we're off to the races. And now we start to look like trouble to a well-ordered society, which I think the church should be. Ephesians is going to develop this, as we're going to see in a minute. One other comment I'll make. Having just said that we should be troubled to a well-ordered society, I'm conscious this is going to go on the internet, so I need to make sure I cover myself here. Um, Of course, knowing that the gospel is profoundly tectonically shifting for the world and for how society is, how relationships in the Lord are, are reordered, is one thing. Doing it in a way that doesn't get you killed is another. And we're so used to being comfortable in our modern worlds where, by and large, apart from the odd broken window, we're allowed to carry on our business as Christians. We're so used to that that we forget that for Paul and his fledgling churches, it was a matter of life or death. And that if if word had got out that they were replacing nature with this Jesus thing, there'd be a crowd of people at the door saying, you guys are threatening to take apart the fabric of our society. And I don't want to be one of those people that says, would that the church be threatened more often with taking apart the fabric of society? I don't want to invite that kind of persecution. But as long as we don't forget that that's what the gospel does. And for these Christians, these radical instructions about living in such a way that is fitting in the Lord was balanced with live wisely. Colossians 4.5, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Ephesians 5.15 and 16, be careful how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So he's not saying just go out hell for leather and tear down the state. Okay? We could do with a bit more of that from time to time. But you know, he's not, he's not, this is not a message of revolution. He's saying this is the transformed reality in which you live, but live wisely and make the most of your time because the days are evil. It's hard for us to imagine trying to walk that line. I think too often we're so far away from the radical end of that line that we don't even sense the tension. Maybe we should think a bit about that. Okay. About 10 minutes or so, and I want to look at Ephesians 5 in some detail. Is that all right? So what we've done so far is a little bit of preamble and me trying to get myself comfortable on the stage and get you to trust me. Don't know if I did that well or not. A little bit of work on the background and the world behind the text, and a very quick look at the relationship between Colossians and Ephesians. And now what I want to do is look closely at Ephesians 5. Is that all right? We'll do that for about 10 minutes or so, and then I'll probably say something like, that's all, folks, and sit down. And we can 
talk about what you want to talk about. Okay, that's where we're going. Have I got you for another 10 minutes? It might, it might end up being 15. Okay, if you start to flag, just flag obviously and I'll stop. All right, this is the bit you probably wanted me to do because this is where all my grand-sounding words might come unraveled. As they should, all grand-sounding ideas should be forced to confront the fire of Scripture. So let's see if it survives. Obviously, I've gamed the system to begin with, so I know it's going to, but maybe you'll not be convinced. And if you're not convinced, that's fine. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. I'm just going to focus on the first part of Ephesians' household code, which is on... Um, husbands and wives. There's also bits on um, slaves and masters and on uh, parents and children. But Ephesians 5 really kind of unpacks a lot more the the, um, male-female relation, the husband-wife relation. Okay, Ephesians 5.21. Now let's have a look. Who's got the church Bibles? Put your hands up if you're holding an NIV. Quite a lot of you are. Did you notice that I started with verse 21? Where's verse 21 on yours? Yeah, before a great big fat paragraph break and a subheading, neither of which are in the original manuscripts or the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. So Ephesians 5.21 says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in some Bibles, not just the NIV, I'm not just going to pick on the NIV, but there's others too, there then follows a paragraph break and sometimes even a heading. The headings aren't part of Scripture. You can cross them out if you don't like them. Don't worry, you're not going to go to hell for doing that. Okay? They've been inserted by the helpful translators of the NIV, a committee of men, think to help you with um, interpreting passages. And sometimes they're really helpful, and sometimes they're not. Verse numbers, paragraph breaks, headings, none of that came out of Paul's mind. None of that is in the original manuscripts. They're all on far later editions. We can, we can ignore them if we want to. That's fine. I'm not messing with Scripture to ignore paragraph breaks if I've got good reason. Do I have good reason? Because paragraph breaks are powerful. And if you start reading at verse 22, it changes the nature of this passage. If I start reading at verse 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Okay, it's softened considerably, right? Than if I just came in with verse 22. So the first thing I'll say, and I really think that that our New Testaments need to take this seriously. It's, these, are, these things are all debated, by the way, of course. Everything I'm saying is debated. We really should look carefully at our punctuation and our paragraph breaks and how we divide up texts. bit of advice I always give to my students when they're asked to preach from the lectionary. Do you preach from the lectionary in this church? Many churches do. I always say, just be a little suspicious of the lectionary because occasionally they skip the really interesting bits or they start a passage where it really shouldn't start. You have to study the passage to figure out where it wants to start. That's part of loving attention to it. So, where should this start? Now, the interesting thing, I'm going to make it a little bit even more messy for you. In the best manuscripts that we have, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts that we have, the verb be subject in verse 22 isn't there. Simply no verb there at all. It's not actually a new sentence. It's a continuation of the previous sentence, which would then read, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands, as you are to the Lord. It's part of the same thought. It's part of the same sentence. And now, the instructions to women to be subject are part of, framed by, the more important instruction, be subject to one another. 
So whatever we think about the subjection of women in verse 22, once you realize that verb isn't even there, that instruction isn't even explicit to the women there, and even if it is, it's part of a bigger instruction to all of us to be subject to one another, suddenly we start thinking maybe this passage isn't saying quite what I thought it was saying. So we start at verse 21, at least. You with me on this one so far? You may have, I may have already lost some of you, and that's okay, because it's going to get worse. Because verse 21 isn't the beginning of the sentence either. For those of you who are interested, for the three of you in the room that paid attention in my Greek class, these are all participles. The main verb, the actual instruction, the actual command, addressed, by the way, to the entire church, is not, not a command to women anywhere here. Not in the Greek. The command is a long way back. <laughs> you have to go all the way back to verse 18, where we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Are we all okay with that one? I hope you are. Paul's telling you what to do here. He didn't like Paul telling you what to do. He's telling you to be filled with the Spirit. And when Paul tells his churches to be filled with the Spirit, regularly, over and over again, it's be filled with the Spirit, and I'm about to tell you how to live in mutual submission one to the other, how to live in solidarity, how to live with mutual affection and mutual love, because that's, by the way, what the Holy Spirit does. And it's a good job, because I'm really bad at doing it. Okay, I need the Holy Spirit to help me love you, especially at the minute, given some of the looks on your faces. Okay, help me, Lord, more, Lord. Okay, Paul, when he gives the command to be filled with the Spirit, regularly does so in the context of mutual affection. I'm going to pick one to read you. Philippians 2, famous, famous passage. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then the famous Philippian hymn comes in. Being filled with the Spirit is connected with that regularly in Paul. And here too. That, by the way, is the only imperative, the only command verb in the passage directed explicitly at women. Be filled with the Spirit. So I'm going to stand here as a man on the stage telling you what to do. Be filled with the Spirit. Maybe if we took that command a little bit more seriously, we might get further with this passage. So often we skew our readings of this passage. We game it from the beginning by starting at verse 22 and saying this is a passage about instructions to wives. It's a passage about the church being filled with the Spirit. That's what it's about. And that's what it means to pay loving attention to this text and recognize that's where it begins. Be filled with the Spirit. And this is all the stuff that's going to flow from that. Being subject to one another is one of the things that flows from a Spirit-filled church. You show me a church that looks like it's filled with the Spirit and people aren't subject to one another and I'll tell you it's not filled with the Spirit. Because that's what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is at work in a church. Mutual submission and love. A church characterized by domineering is not one characterized by the work of the Spirit. I think I'm on pretty strong ground to say that. So the key idea of the whole passage is submitting to one another, which is at the heart of Paul's ethics, rooted in Christ, who, of course, is the model of that submission. This is the heart of his reworking of these household codes. By the way, if you read on further, you'll see when we get to slaves and masters, there's these instructions to slaves to, to, uh, to serve their masters, but then it says, and masters, do the same thing for your slaves. That's dynamite. Aristotle will be turning in his grave. 
to give commands to masters that they should be also subservient to their slaves. Wow, that's pretty remarkable stuff. I'm going to run out of time before I do the whole passage. I'm getting the okay from the boss. All right. Let's move on. Verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife. I'll try and go a little bit more quickly, but I don't want to lose you, okay? The husband is the head of the wife. This is another, another time when we need to pause and make sure we know the distance between us and the text. Head, of course, is a metaphor, okay? It's a part of the body. It's been used as a metaphor. But how does that metaphor work? Let's not assume that it works the same way in modern English as it does in ancient Greek. That'd be a good place to start. Does it work the same way? No. <laughs> it doesn't. In some senses, yeah. But in other senses, not. There's overlap, but they're not exactly the same. And we shouldn't assume they're exactly the same. So let's do a whole bunch of hard work. I'm not going to do it all with you. I've done it for you. Other, actually, no, loads of other really great female scholars have done this work. And male scholars, too. It's a metaphor, but it doesn't work the same way that the metaphor in English works. Here's a few options. Does head mean hierarchy? Like a headmaster, head teacher, right? That's one option. By the way, um, if we were to bring Taito back out, he's on holiday now, so I can't bring him up, but when in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that God is the head of Christ, if headness means hierarchy, we've got some interesting Trinitarian problems. Some people, by the way, have leaned into that and said, yep, the Father is the head. The, the hierarchical head of the Son. I think that's borderline heretical and dangerous for the doctrine of the Trinity. And the lengths that people will go to defend what they want to happen in the home is remarkable. That's my view anyway. But that's just one of the options. Head doesn't have to mean hierarchy. Head can mean some sense of foremostness or first principle. It doesn't have to mean a question of hierarchy. It can be a question of firstness, which doesn't have to necessarily mean the top of a pyramid. Head can also mean source, like the head, headwaters of a river. It can mean the thing from which life flows. There's at least three options for how head be, is, is to be read. And we have to think, well, which one is the most likely, based on all the data, based on the text, and so on? One scholar called Cindy Westfall, Cynthia Westfall, who's written some wonderful, wonderful stuff on this, suggests that head means source of life when we're talking about kinship and families. The head of a family is not the family's ruler, but the one from whom the family flows, from where they get their life, from where they get their provision and everything else. And she suggests that this image, particularly when it's combined with the image of a body as it is here, suggests an image of organic unity, of biological interdependency. The head and the body need each other. The body's not fine without the head, but the head's not fine without the body either. There's a mutual interdependency between head and body of nourishment and life and the source of life. This makes a lot of sense, I think, particularly in the way that Paul uses the metaphor here and elsewhere. In Ephesians 4, for example, and verse 15, he says, misspelling Ephesians, he says, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And notice what follows, and it's not about ruling. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it's equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. There's not a sniff of authoritarian hierarchical rule there. It's about provision and growth and nourishment, which is very much the context of what's going on here. Whatever head means, 
Christ is the model for what that headship looks like. And he is the one who doesn't just, he is the ruler. Of course, he is the ruler. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the provision of life and nourishment. What does headship look like when it's fitting in the Lord, as Colossians puts it? Well, Paul goes on to say a lot about what that looks like. And I'm just going to have to skim from this point. Because he gives a heck of a lot more instructions to husbands in this passage that's supposedly about wives. They get three verses and the men get nine. The men get a lot more commands here. And yet, how loudly do we hear the commands to the women and how much we ignore the commands to the men. So get yourselves comfy, guys. These instructions to men as to what they're to do. This is a radical departure from the normal household codes. Considerable responsibility is placed on the men to be the agents of change and of mutuality. Another reason why I'm standing here. Considerable responsibility is placed upon the men to do these things. All these radical shifts are actually reserved for the men to make. All sorts of things. And once again, Jesus is our model. Of course he is. His headship, which takes the form of self-sacrifice, is the model for how we are to live. Too often we ignore Jesus as the one in whom everything should be fitting. And we make up our own ideas of headship first. Husbands are to love their wives like their own bodies. They are, after all, one flesh. Notice that the wife is now the husband's male body. That weird, interesting, metaphorical work going on. This deep interdependency. There's a lot of interesting plays on gender stereotypes. Look at the kind of work that the husband is expected to do. In fact, that Christ does. Presents the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. There we are, he's in the laundry. Jesus is doing the laundry. This, I don't think, is just a joke. I think this is deeply interesting that Christ is not given all the traditional men's roles, but all the traditional women's roles. So much for things being established in nature, right? Presenting the church without spot or wrinkle. Washing and cleansing. The washing of the water by the word. Making her holy. Cleaning, laundry, ironing. That's Jesus' work. And it's the men who are told to do that for their wives. To nourish. By the way, the same word often used for the way that a woman feeds a child. Paul regularly describes himself, by the way, in such maternal metaphors, as one who wants to give pure milk to his churches. He's not afraid to look a little bit effeminate, or what we might call effeminate. Can I just pause briefly to say that toxic masculinity, by the way, is a deeply, deeply troubling trend in the church today and I think needs to be named and called out for what it is. Paul talks about himself like a nursing mother. And he planted more churches than any of the rest of you. So, you know, maybe listen to him. That is what it means to be a head, to be the source of life to another. Now, we're going to discuss in a minute, and maybe you think that's not going far enough, because it still puts men as being the source of something. Yeah, but at the same time, just because all women, just because a, a Eve came from Adam. Adam was the source for Eve. Every other man ever since came from a woman. Paul makes that point in this letter to Corinth, that there's this interdependency of being a source for each other. And he goes on to talk a little bit about Genesis, and maybe we'll get into this in our our Q&A, in our discussion. But one thing I will say about the bit where he says, uh, for this reason, uh, a man shall uh, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh is that he's quoting there from Genesis 2. Genesis 1, by the way, is about dominion. It's about ruling of the world. 
and there are commands of dominion given to both man and the woman. Genesis 2 is about mutuality. As Adam says to Eve, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. We're for one another. A passage, by the way, that in the Jewish tradition was actually used to say how powerful women were and how important they were. There's a mutuality in Genesis 2 that's profoundly interesting. Eve, as the helper of Adam, as it's often translated, that word perhaps is better translated ally than helper. We sometimes get that Hebrew word a little bit out of whack. But notice one thing. It's interesting that it's, uh, the woman doesn't sever her family, tri- uh, her family ties and then her role is to perpetuate the male line. Actually, it says the man will leave his family. How interesting that in our society, my wife took my surname. I didn't take hers. Where did we get that idea from? I'm not saying go out and, you know, well, you can if you like, go out and do whatever you like with your surnames. But it's interesting that we've, we've assumed that actually the woman then joins the male family. But actually the text says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and you actually form a new bond. That's interesting, isn't it? We haven't questioned this. I've told, I've told Becky, by the way, that she can, she can go by her maiden name if she wants to, or we can create a new hybrid double name or something. I know people are doing that sort of thing. Maybe that's more faithful to scripture. But that would mess with the fabric of society, wouldn't it? Okay, I need to finish. I've gone over. Let me, let me just finish with this. That there's, there's considerably more. I wish I could go into even more detail, but I've run out of time. Um, there's considerably more instruction given to the men here in terms of the radical changes that they're going to be expected to make. They would have been worried by this after 500 years of Aristotle. This is starting to look deeply troubling to my fragile masculinity. And I think that's part of the point. That's what the fittingness in the Lord, in, in whom, by the way, Paul says, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. He makes that point quite clear to the church in Galatia. And this mystery of being together is what the church is all about in the power of the Spirit. These household codes, like all of the New Testament's gender ethics, by the way, are established in what is fitting in the Lord. So if, if half of my exegesis is nonsense, if I've made an absolute mess of some of these passages, fine. I'm doing my best. But let's take away this one thing. Is it fitting in the Lord? If we keep asking that question and keep having the conversation, I think we'll do quite well. What is fitting in the Lord in a household in which dividing walls have been broken down, as Ephesians 2 says? Or are we erecting more dividing walls between men and women? I've got some questions for us to discuss. I'm not going anywhere. For, I might run quickly while you guys are discussing things. We can talk a bit more about some of the other bits and pieces if you want to, but I want to leave you with that thought. We have to place ourselves under the command of Christ, under that command given to us all, be filled with the Spirit and live in a way that is fitting in the Lord, in whom there is no male nor female, no slave or free, no Jew nor Greek, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. I believe these texts have profound things to say that will undermine this, uh, this claim of the world that says some people are just made to rule and actually say, no, we're rooting how we live with one another. We're rooting that in Christ. And as long as we keep appealing to Christ, I think we might start getting somewhere with this conversation. I hope that was helpful. I'm going to pray and then, I don't know, chaos will be unleashed at some point by Maddie, um, who's going to throw me under the bus or do something nice. I don't know what she's going to do. Um, I'm going to finish there. Let's pray.
loving God, I'm so sorry for the times when I have used um, the, the life-giving text as a weapon, when I have used it to hurt others. And I pray particularly for those present for whom that has been a painful reality. And I pray for healing and wholeness for each person here. And as a man, I repent of the times I've been complicit in some of the deeply unfaithful ways in which we've um, set ourselves up as your church. And we failed to attend to the one who is our head, our source of life, who commands us to be filled with the Spirit and to live in mutual affection. Help us, Lord, all to, um, to obey that command, to be filled right now with your Spirit and to go about the business of living in mutual submission, each one preferring the other as is fitting for people who bear your name. Help us all, by the power of your Spirit, to be more faithful. And as we discuss these passages today, would you look after us, Lord? Would you come by your Spirit and be present? And Lord, help us to to go further into truth. Help us to be better readers of the Scriptures, better lovers of each other, better husbands, better wives, and perhaps slightly less good members of society where appropriate. And for that, we call for your wisdom. Amen. Um, I just want to say thank you, Jamie. I know that that was um, probably hours too short. Um, Jamie has done a whole kind of teaching series on this. So, um, and you've written lots of books, I hear. Um, not on this, though. Not so on this. Maybe not on this, but I'm sure um, there is lots more to say. So well done for doing that in, in 45 minutes. That's um, generous of you. It was 55, but thanks 55. anyway. <laughs> um, so we're going to do Q&A now. Um, Isaac is... Where's Isaac? There he is. Um, he's going to run around with the mic. Um, and I just want to reiterate what Jamie said about remembering the third person um, when you're asking your questions. But also, don't be so sensitive because these, these conversations do need to be had. Um, and I feel like I can say that um, as a woman sitting here today. So if you do have a question... Um, then raise your hand, and Isaac is going to be our little run around. Who's going to be the first? There we go. Everyone's doing that. Oh, should it be a woman going first now? Or should it be? A... It's okay. It's fine sometimes for a man to speak. <laughs> well, firstly, thank you very much. That was as academically fascinating, I think, as it was sort of theologically profound. So um, please come back and do the toxic masculinity one. Sometime sooner, because I think that would be another really, really interesting <laughs> subject. To write to it. <laughs> um, I think the question, I don't know if it's too straightforward or too expansive, I'm not quite sure, but if you, in Ephesians 5, we say it should be read from verse 18, what would be the other side of the debate saying, well, it shouldn't be? Because I assume there is a debate because our Bibles haven't all been rewritten with a different structure and sort of layout. So what's the argument for how it's currently laid out? How nerdy do you want me to be? Um, Very there are some manuscripts that do have the verb there. I said it was debated. Um, a lot of this comes down to really arcane things like squiggles in margins on old manuscripts as to whether that indicates that this verb should be there or not. Copyists are working by candlelight deep into the night and they make mistakes, okay? We don't have photocopiers in kind of the sixth century monastic cells. So you do get these little differences and scholars wrestle with them and the great thing about it is all of those, are, you can see them all for free on the internet. This is not hidden away in some you know, restricted section of Hogwarts. It's all available. Um, some people argue that yes, there is a verb there. Yes, there is supposed to be the beginning of a new section with new commands. 
Um, I, I, I can see the arguments. It's not a slam dunk case, but I'm not convinced. And even if it is there, the repetition of the verb and carrying right back through the passage, I think st it still makes sense. I, I talked about paying attention to the shape of a passage, right, and to the flow of it. The argument makes a lot of sense as, a, as an instruction to be filled with the Spirit, and then mutual submission flows from, from that and all of the different instructions that follow on. So even if you put be subject to, as my, as my New Revised Standard Version inserts that, even if you're going to say be subject to, I still think you need to bracket it with the previous instruction, which is to be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. That's the outer frame within which we talk about different kinds of mutual submission. So yeah, there, there are arguments to say, yes, sh we should have that verb there. And the debates continue. And scholars working away in dusty corners hammer away at this stuff. And literally, it gets down to measuring how long a particular line in a margin is as to whether that indicates a variant or not. It's that kind of level of nerdery. That's not to make it sound like it's this weird, obscure thing that none of us can have anything to do with. This stuff is being read by the people who produce Bible translations. That's why we need to keep working. And we always need to do new translations. Um, I don't know if anyone's got the, the TNIV, today, the, the, today's new international version. You'll have noticed some changes. And some of that changing is the product of those committees reading that scholarship and thinking, yeah, that's convincing. Now we need to reframe how we do it. That might be right. That might be wrong. We keep going. So I think the Lord has a place for nerds in his kingdom. And uh, I hope so. And um, yeah, so it, it's not a slam dunk. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. But I'm, I, I, from what I know, I'm still not convinced that, that we should be breaking it up quite as we are doing. There's a few other places, by the way, in other texts that are similar things that we could talk about. But. Is that, is that helpful? If you want to know more, learn Greek, read some weird nerdery, come, come join us. <laughs> Hi, um, just if you had two books that you were going to recommend reading around the issue um, in sort of to continue the conversation with what you were saying today, what would you recommend? Because a lot of the books are kind of that exist are kind of done on people's opinions and maybe not so much kind of actually giving you some of the more interesting underlying facts, which you've done really well tonight. Well, I don't know about whether I'll give you facts or not. I don't know where the line is between fact and opinion. I've given you arguments. You can evaluate them. Goodness, two, two books. I could, I could give you... He's got a whole list here. i got so, my um, list. Um, you could just email it out to I, could, I, I can certainly email you the list. I, I was too late making my slides, and what I would have done is put... Um, I talked about amplifying, and I did a very poor job of amplifying. So let me amplify the work of Cindy Westfall. So Cynthia Westfall, a book called Paul and Gender. Wonderful book. Um, probably half of my met by best points of hers. Um, so Cindy Westfall's book, Paul and Gender, is brilliant. Something a bit more accessible, because um, that's quite a technical one. I mean, with, it'd be remiss of me, um, the fact that Nick Crawley was here two weeks ago, it'd be remiss of me not to mention Lucy Pepiat's work, um, who is married to Nick. Um, she wrote a couple of really good books, one called Unveiling Paul's Women, which is on 1 Corinthians 11, another one called Recovering Scripture's Vision for Women um, with IVP. Um, one other... Oh, if you want something just lovely to read, it's summer holidays coming up. Paula Gooder wrote a book called Phoebe, which is a story. It's not an academic book. It's a story of Phoebe's life. Phoebe, um, the, the companion and co-worker of Paul, I believe the first person to ever interpret the letter to the Romans. And she wrote a wonderful imagining of Phoebe's life, 
with a fat footnote section at the end of all the scholarship that goes behind her imagining. So if you want a story of Phoebe's ministry as a leader in the church, uh, that's a wonderful little read. So there's a few. Um, I can give you a big, long list of more if you want more. Amazing. Have we got any more questions on down here? Come on, Isaac. Oh, you got one at the back? Yes. Okay, give you that first, then we'll go to Ellie. Um, so how would you expand what we've talked about today beyond the household and into the church? So especially given what Paul then writes in Timothy and yeah. other texts, which is a bit, appear contradictory. Yes. Um, I mean, I could have done 1 Timothy 2. I could have done 1 Corinthians 11. There's a whole bunch of other passages that are not about married relationships, but about and the role of women in the church generally. I think um, the same... Um, cultural blinkers that have, that have caused us to misread Ephesians 5 have happened with how we read those other passages too. Um, to tell you how that works would be two more lectures, and I don't think anybody wants me going on too much longer. But um, there's a number of little details and framing things that happen in those letters where I don't believe they uh, restrict the role of women in churches they, don't cite, they shouldn't be used to silence women. And they've been misinterpreted and mistranslated in places and misread in others. Um, that They seem to be saying that to us. So I, I take both of those texts to also, to also be liberative for women when read properly, uh, what, I, what I take to be more responsible and careful readings. That's kind of a headline. Um, I'm tempted, the problem is between that headline and the detail, then it goes into another 30-minute talk. So um, if there's a specific bit, I could perhaps talk about it, but generally speaking, I don't think um, either of those passages, 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 11, um, should be used, uh, should be read as um, restrictive or silencing of women's ministries in the church. I, that sounds like, sounds like I'm just kind of avoiding the detail, but sorry, I missed that. Yes. We want more, more basically. More for the toxic masculinity talk. Any well, I've got, I've got five more hours on the, on the women thing. If you want me back, I can come back and do some more. Take that. <laughs> Careful what you ask for. Any more questions? Uh, it was Ellie. Yeah. If you were to succinctly, succinctly summarise how someone uses Paul, these kind of writings of Paul's, um, like Genesis 2, to um, kind of agree with not having women in leadership is there a way that you would kind of in, you know if you're having a small debate with someone or if someone says yeah but, but Paul says this Paul says this is there a way that you can kind of summarize it all without kind of having to go spend half an hour <laughs> half an hour is generous <laughs> goodness there's a whole lot in that uh, one thing I would say is that Paul Paul approved of women in leadership. He had women in leadership. He was good friends with Priscilla, who was, by the way, the leader of the church and planted the church in Ephesus, to which 1 Timothy 2 was written, to which Ephesians was possibly written. Uh, Phoebe was entrusted with to be the first interpreter of his most famous letter. So he, them and a whole bunch of others, um, time doesn't tell to speak of all the other women that he, met, he praises, and Junior the Apostle, and Lydia, and um, Eurydian Syntyche, and a whole bunch of other people. Was he inconsistent? He kind of worked alongside women, had co-workers who were women who seemed to be performing the same diaconal and leadership roles as men were. Either, either he's completely inconsistent 
in letters to the very same churches where women were leaders. I mean, Priscilla was the teacher of Apollos, who was, I mean, she gave grad, le- grad school level education to Apollos, who already knew the gospel, right? This was not children's ministry. <laughs> this was like graduate level education that she gave to Apollos. And she was the leader in the church to, to whom he wrote these letters. Is he completely inconsistent or are we misreading him? That'd be one of the things I would say as a kind of a, of a, a hook to get people in and say, what, is his practice and then is what is right. So something's got, to, something's got to be done here. So I'm not just trying to dance around a problem for cultural reasons. Cultural reasons have helped me see this problem, um, sure. But the problem's there, whether, it's, whether culture helped me see it or not, because Paul otherwise is inconsistent. His appeal to Genesis, I would look carefully at the texts. As usual, I'm a Bible scholar. What else am I going to say? Look carefully at the texts. Um, Genesis 2 is not talking about hierarchy. The woman created as the azer, as the, the ally, the bone of my bone text, this is all about mutuality. It's not good for man to be alone. The text doesn't say I'm going to make him a subservient partner. It says I'm going to make him an ally. Compliment, the complementarity of us, oh, that's the wrong word to use in this conversation. The mutuality of us needing one another that transcends gender, by the way, but we need one another. That's part of God's design. Human beings are not automata. We don't kind of, we're not individuals. We need one another, which makes it even sadder that these texts have been used to cut half of the, um, God's church out of, out of their ministries sometimes. So there's a couple of things. Read the text carefully and look at how they're being used and what's not being said. What have we assumed? Sometimes it's taken that people will do what I just did. It's like, oh, you're just allowing culture to shape your exegesis. I'm like, who gets to say that? Because... I mean, patriarchal culture has been running for quite a long time. So that's, that's had more time to have its effects on our readings of texts to the point that we don't even notice it anymore, unless you're a woman and you notice it daily, right? Um, but it's okay because patriarchy means we don't have to hear your voices. So we, we get this reinforcing echo chamber of patriarchy. And who gets to say who's the one being shaped by culture? Like maybe that, maybe the patriarchal culture has got a lot more to say about shaping how we read these texts. Patriarchy, by the way, is a result of the fall. In Genesis, when it's said that man will rule over woman, that's one of the results of the fall. That's not God's design. It's sin. So, yeah, Genesis does say that men will rule over women. It says it as one of the results of the fall. It's what happened because of sin. So unless you want to institutionalize and endorse sin in church then don't endorse patriarchy. So anyway, that's one of the, there's a few little bits there. <laughs> uh, we've got time for one more, Flo. Oh, there's one there. It's the length of the answers that's the problem, not the length of the questions. <laughs> By the way, I'm not going anywhere tonight. I've got no life. This is what I do. This is what I do for fun. So I, I can stay around if anyone wants to talk after. About um, uh, verse 26, uh, the washing of the word, um, and you did, did I get it right? Did you say um, that Paul specifically used that language to uh, because he was talking about washing, and um, that would be have traditionally been something that a woman would have done? Is that your take on it, or is that do you think that was specifically language that Paul was using in order to illustrate that? He and Jesus would have sacrificially put themselves in that position, and therefore putting women in a different position to what they were in that day? I mean, I, I can't get inside Paul's mind, so I don't know what he was trying to do. Um, and it's not my take, it's Cindy Westfall's again. That's another one. I told you any good, anything good came from that book. But it's really interesting that when Christ's ministry for the church, what it means for him to be head of the church. Well, what does it look like when he is head of the church? He washes, cleans, feeds, 
bathes, irons, gets the wrinkles out. All these things are traditionally feminine roles in ancient Greco-Roman society and in many parts of the world still today, considered to be very feminine behaviors. That's how Christ is head. So whatever you, whether you're convinced or not about my arguments about the different meanings of headship, and I think source of life and nourishment is a good reading of headship in that point and a perfectly good use of the metaphor, plenty of evidence for that. Regardless of whether you're convinced by that one or not, Christ is depicted in his role as head of the church doing all that stuff. And so if I want to be head of my household, I should darn well be doing the ironing and the feeding and the cleaning, or at least my fair share of it. You know, because I'm not, by the way, matriarchy is just as bad as patriarchy. And I'm not advocating for a flip. Um, mutuality is what we're aiming for here. We're not trying to swing a pendulum. But Christ is depicted in those roles, which were very much the feminine roles, for the master of the church, the Lord of the church, and he is Lord of the church, to show you what it means to be ahead. That's how he shows you. And it's the same argument that Paul makes in Philippians. Your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. Oh, goody, I want to be like Christ to my family, okay, die for them, give yourself up for them, feed them, nourish them, pour yourself out for them. That's what headship looks like. And if you do that, by the way, and then there's also mutual submission, then you're starting to fulfill that command to be filled by the Spirit in your home and in, in your churches and, and other things. So I think Paul knew what he was doing. And I think he knew that that would be quite countercultural for what people thought a real man should do. They had strong views on what real men were like, as we still do in many parts of the world today. And um, we all, I mean, I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up with lad culture and ladette culture, and it was toxic in all sorts of ways. And I'm still recovering from the 90s. I'm a child of the 70s, but you know what I mean? I was actually, I made myself sound younger than I actually am. My formative late teen years were in the 90s, and there was some real toxic masculinity there as well. I think Paul knows that when he says, this is what a real man looks like, Jesus is what a real man looks like, and he uses all these feminine metaphors. It starts to make you think, okay, this culturally bound, natural, appropriate men's work, women's work thing gets completely unraveled by Jesus. I can only just hear you, but I think you said it was beautiful, and it is. Yeah. Unveiling is a nice choice of words. <laughs> You're just setting me up to talk about 1 Corinthians 11, but that's another thing. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Amazing. Um, that's all we have time for. Um, I'm sure there's lots of you kind of sitting there thinking, oh, I've got so many things to ask. And Jamie is going to stick around for a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, my, my, so wife, my wife's picking me up. I don't know what time she's coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, but should we just give him one more round of applause to say thank you so much? challenging subject so thank you so much for bringing it to light for all of us here this evening um, next week we have our final week um, of theology school crime um, but we have Dr Victoria is she here yay um, one of our very own coming to speak to us um, next week which we are really really looking forward to um, so I'm going to ask Jamie to finish in prayer for us is that okay sure um, but just to say uh, services are as usual um, this Sunday coming up but if you'd like to pray that would be great yep. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Um, thank you that you didn't just give us code, that you gave us these wonderful, complex, troubling, 
texts, these letters, these stories um, that draw us into the humanity of, of your encounter with us. Help us to be um, good readers. Help us to be um, honest. Help us to pursue truth. We thank you for the hard work that it takes and that through that hard work we, we grow to know you better and to love and trust you more. Um, thank you for the time that we've had this evening to do that. Would you refresh us now, Lord, as we, as we go home, as we rest, would you give us good sleep? And the many unanswered questions that we all have, Lord, we, we hand over to you and we trust you. We know you are good and ask that you would continue to lead us on in our journeys of, uh, of following you in faith, knowing that we don't understand it all but we do know that you are good and that your word is life to us. Um, and I want to pray particularly for any who are leaving, um, feeling hurt, feeling beat up, any who have left, and ask for your healing balm of the Spirit to be on them. Lord, that you would lead them into deeper life and truth and help us to be good friends to them as we submit to one another in the power of the Spirit. So... Bless each one of these people. Bless this church, Lord, for this ministry that they're doing and continue to uh, watch over them. Thank you, Lord, for this time and for one another. Amen.